Let's pray together. Gracious God, having heard your scripture proclaimed, having sung songs of praise, we invite you to continue to speak to us this morning. That our questions might bring forth words and insights that you might have for us. And that the meditations of my heart and the words of my mouth be pleasing to you, O Lord, our God. Amen. So this is week four of our series about seeking and the ways in which questions open us. We began by uh, talking about who we listen to and then moved on to talking about the character of Nicodemus who came in the middle of the night earlier on in the Gospel of John and wondering if his life could really be changed and what it would mean to be born again. And last week we talked about the woman at the well and Jesus offering life-giving water that would thirst no more or quench the thirst of anyone who drank it. And the question was, do we thirst? Well, this morning we have another question, and that question is written in your bulletin. It's, who sinned? But really, the sermon is less about the question, who sinned, and more about the fact that not all questions are good questions. I'm going to get to that a little bit later, but first I'll start with the worst question that is a really, just a really bad question. If you are with us last week, you'll know a little bit more about this. If you know anything about me, you know that I like Duke basketball, so the real, the worst question you can ask is, did Duke lose yesterday? And the answer to that is yes, they did. And so I'm in a state of mourning because of that. So now you know, so don't ask me the bad question, okay? Because not all questions are good, all right? And I don't know who's going to win either, by the way. I'm just, I can't think there yet. So no one. Princeton, who knows? Um, but I, I'm a skeptic, and I, I, I've talked about this before, and I talked about how uh, I, I just dive into, like, whether it's the scripture or other things. And I remember um, when me and some of my small group in college, we were trying to think of, like, how do we, like, just be a blessing to the community around us? And we were, we were talking about how we could start to do some, like, secret acts of kindness for other people. And then, you know, we kind of snowballed these ideas and thinking about, like, well, how do we, like, not just do secret acts of kindness, like show up in the middle of the night and paint a handrail that was desperately in need of painting or, you know, doing some sort of just good deed in the hidden that people might notice, but we really wanted them not just to notice it got done and, you know, just think that just some random person did it, but we wanted to inspire them to do it themselves. And so we thought, hey, how do we do it in secret and yet encourage them to do it the same? And so we talked about creating uh, just this, um, and I won't use the word because I think it's actually still going on in my undergraduate school. So, but we came up with a, a Greek name or actually a Hebrew name um, for it. And we had like a symbol and then we tried to like put that symbol wherever we did an act of kindness, right? And I remember um, as the skeptic in the room, I was like, guys, this isn't going to work, right? You know, like, and I would ask the question, so what are we going to do? And like, what do we think's going to happen? You think that people are going to just like all of a sudden start, you know, knowing that this Hebrew letter was associated with this passage from Philippians, and then they know the Greek word, like, guys, this is, let's just do the thing and do the thing and be done, but let's not try to do all of the others, right? And then sure enough, I found out years later that this had inspired students beyond us and that they had continued it on in my undergraduate school. And then, in fact, we had passed it on when we were graduating from seniors to some 
juniors, and then they had passed it on from some juniors. And, you know, five years down the road, I don't know, it's been like 20 years since college now, so I don't know if it's still going on, but I knew it had lasted, right? And, and the questions that I were give, asking were helpful, kind of, but really what they were were skeptical, right? You know, you have those questions that are, you know, driven out of judgment already. Or is that, that's just me, okay, just me. Well, the Pharisees seem to have those sorts of questions, right? How many times in this, when you're listening to this really long passage, did you hear questions from the Pharisees? I mean, this poor man who was born blind, who then Jesus heals, has to retell his story like three times to the point where he just says, guys, what are you wanting from me right now? I've answered you three times, but you're not gonna listen. And he was exactly right. The disciple or the Pharisees had made their judgment from the moment they asked him the question, or at least most of them had, although some were divided. And their judgment was, no, you couldn't be the guy because if you were the guy that was born blind and you had been healed, you were healed on the Sabbath and no one can follow Moses and heal on the Sabbath. So we know that what happened to you is not a good thing. We know that what happened to you is not of God. So that means you couldn't have been healed because God is in the business of healing. And whoever did this didn't do it on a Sabbath because then they would have had to have been from God. And we don't break the Sabbath. And so they asked this man these questions over and over again. And all of this is kind of within the backdrop of this idea going on in the Gospel of John about darkness and light, right? The Gospel of John begins with this. I'm the light, the light of the world. It breaks into the darkness. It's the, the message that we say on Christmas Eve in our sanctuary that the light has broken into the darkness and the darkness shall not overcome it from the Gospel of John. And the theme carries throughout the Gospel. So the idea of darkness and this man being blind is also serving as this broader metaphor, broader metaphor for God's light breaking in. And are we able to see it? Or are we clouded by our preconceived notions of the way God ought to work and our skeptical questions that we ask in relation to it? Because the question that they ask, or that even the question that the disciples ask at the beginning, starts with that, right? It's not just the Pharisees. The disciples were walking along, and they see this blind man on the side of the road, and they ask a question, who sinned? Who sinned? Was it this man, or was it his parents? Because to be born blind at the time was to be born it flawed, marred, an act of God's judgment upon them, or that's a way in which they had interpreted the Bible. That if you have something wrong with you, it's because of a sin that was in your life. And so you were both shunned because you couldn't physically do the things that the rest of the community could do, but then also you were spiritually relegated to the side because you were now unclean because how could you be blind and be holy? How could you be blind and holy? So who sinned? 
And, and I know we have this confused look on our faces, and we say to ourselves, well, how could anyone assume that about people? Assume that because there, you know, something wrong with them, that they had sinned, and that God had judged them or their parents and, and done that. And I don't necessarily know that we get all theological at times about it, but I think that we fall into the trap. And I'm going to tell you two ways in which I've experienced that in my own life. The first of which was when I was uh, um, an intern in North Carolina at a church uh, just outside of Chapel Hill, which we're talking about, you know, anyway, UNC, okay, joke, uh, outside of Chapel Hill. And we were there and we started uh, engaging with this ministry called Circles. And the, the purpose of Circles was to work with people who were experiencing systemic and secular, secular poverty, right? So it wasn't just that they were poor, that they had been poor for quite some time and likely had come from a poor family. And I remember that my eyes were opened, so to speak, because we did this thing called a poverty simulation. Anyone ever done that? Poverty simulation? Well, the poverty simulation started off real great, right? It was like, here's like $10, and here's your job working, you know, minimum wage as a barista at a coffee shop, for example. And then all of a sudden, you know, they'd give you a task. And so it's like, here, I'm a barista, I got $10, and I'm working, and so I know, like, I can calculate my hours I'm going to make, and then, and then they throw in, like, oh, but your car breaks down. And so now you've got to get your car fixed, and then, you know, you go and you try to figure out, well, what am I going to do? Am I going to feed myself that week or am I going to fix my car? And then you have to make that decision. And once you make that decision, well, you realize that once you get your car fixed, it doesn't like pass the safety inspection. And so it's not just like getting it fixed. It's like also you have to change the tires. And so what you thought was a $200 bill ends up being like a $600 bill. And then you have something else like come by that like you know, now your license is expired, but then you weren't able to spend the money on fixing your car. So now you have to like get downtown to like go put you. And it's just like all of a sudden, everything just starts like weighing on you. And you start realizing that like, oh my gosh, it's not just work hard and make money and you'll do well in life. It's like all of these like, obstacles just start like one after another become just so overwhelming that you don't even know what, how you can get out of this thing called poverty. Because it's just like one thing after another after another. But the question that I have had, right, is that, and this is my vulnerability, is seeing someone down on the side of the road or seeing someone who had been, you know, living in a trailer or, you know, and just like not working or whatever it was, it's just like, get a job, right? Just why can't you work towards it? I mean, there's all these resources. Go to college, like get, go to community college. It's not, I mean, it's, you can get scholarships. It's free, you know, and do these things, right? Like I have these assumptions about what saves some money so when the car breaks down, you can pay for it. But then I realized that it's not so simple. And all of that was on the landscape of this project that I haven't told you about, Circles. Because Circles was working with people in systemic poverty, but the goal that they had was not to swoop in and to save people with our assumptions of what they needed. 
Because you know what we do is we come in and we say, okay, let's get you your driver's license. Let's make sure you can get to your job. You can do all these things. But what they realize in this program called Circles is not only is that defeating for the person because like you're telling them everything that they need, but you also as you know some because we were privileged people coming and helping someone who's in poverty or not privileged but people that weren't poor and we came with assumptions on what they needed and the obstacles that they had to overcome what the people have realized is that the people that are in poverty actually have a really good idea of some of the things that they need and they might not make sense to us but they've lived the obstacles So what Circles does is they gather around a person that is kind of on the cusp of being able to break out of systemic poverty, and they listen to them, and they say, what do you need? And then a team of 10 people around this one person or, you know, representing this household decides what they need, and then they, you know, drive them to the Halle to get their license because that's the first thing they need, or or even start back even further, drive them to get a copy of their birth certificate so that they can get their license. Or to like make the phone calls to Colorado where they were born because they somehow lost it and so they can't even get a library card or a bus pass on affordable things because they just don't have it. And what we as a church community at Evergreen United Methodist Church started to realize as we engaged in this practice was how often we were asking the question, who sinned, rather than asking the question, what do they need? What do they need? It's just a simple shift. Who sinned and what do they need? That was one of my transitions in learning about that sort of assumption. And the other comes from kind of working through with my uh, friends and my family, or not my family, but my like theology cohort and all that, is working through the assumptions that I also had towards the LGBT community as well. Uh, Because I'll admit that at, at one point in my journey, I thought that it was a sin because it was a choice of people to make. And that was my assumption that I had. Well, why, why are they choosing to be gay or choosing to be lesbian? Or why are they choosing to be trans? Why are they doing these things? And it was a perspective that I had upon them and based a judgment of God according to it as well. And then I had a number of friends and a number of conversations with them that then changed my perspective because rather than asking the question, why did you choose this path? It was asking the question, how do I be free in the path that God has given me? Because as I talked to my friends, and one of my best friends had, had been with in college, and you know, we thought uh, by the end of college that we were open and welcoming and, and try to like, our perspectives had changed a little bit. But even he it took years afterwards to come out and to say, this is who I am. But as he described that experience, as he described that experience, he almost describes it in the exact words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Romans, of being born anew where he was able to breathe newness of life and the identity that he was living into. And friends, did you know, I mean, you may not know this, but some of the research behind just this particular issue as well is that in 1909, the word homosexuality was added into the Webster's Dictionary, and it was added in as gross, morbid, 
sexual desire for someone of the same orientation. And that was alongside the term heterosexuality at the time, which was gross morbid desire for someone of the other sex. And then they went about treating it as if it was an illness that could be cured. Lobotomies, psychoanalytics, like, I mean, it goes down there. It wasn't until 1973 that it got dropped from the psychological DSM, which is their journal of all their diagnosis, as not that. And the reason it was is because the vast community of PhD, of doctors and counselors and people that had been working with them had started to realize that this wasn't just some choice that they're making wasn't because they were, you know, something happened to them, a trauma when they were a child, and now they're this way. This is just part of who they are. And they saw that the fullness of life for them was lived out as they were able to live into their identity. Who sinned was the question I was asking. When really the question that needed to be asked was how do we listen to the story of that person. The disciples had had their assumptions. The Pharisees, well, they had none of it. And they weren't going to listen to that man no matter what he was going to say because they knew what was right and what was wrong. And they knew that nothing could be done on a Sunday. Well, Saturday for them. <laughs> Not all questions are good questions. So how do we ask with empathy, with a way of listening to another that might change our perspective? To hear stories differently than before. Well, I can tell you one way is always, in my experience, born in relationship. That my perspective has been changed when it's been in the context of relationship. So lead with relationships. Build bonds with people who are different than you that you might ask questions and hope to hear answers that change you a bit. And the other is to let go of assumptions. I told two examples, which my guess is for some of us might connect to. But there's more as well. There's more questions and assumptions that we have about others, you know, whether it's the simple question of, well, why aren't they showing up to work on time? Or why are they late to school every day? Rather than having the judgment built into the question, well, maybe let's have the empathy there to learn well, maybe they're going through a divorce and so they're showing up angry to work because they got a lot going on at home. Or maybe they're late to school because they're one of our 200 youth on the windward side that are homeless and their parents don't have vehicles. Questions might lead us to uncomfortable answers, but that discomfort will lead us to life change It'll lead us to the light of the world that breaks into the darkness. And just like the blind man, we might be able to see anew. So let us ask our questions without the assumptions, without the judgment, 
and open ourselves to the work of God in our midst. I invite you to pray with me. Holy and gracious God, we recognize that all too often our own perspective of rightness and wrongness can blind us to the way we perceive one another in the world around us. Help us ask questions that hear from others, that the experiences lived out by your own children might change us. So we invite you to do that in our hearts and in our lives, to build the relationships, to inspire the questions, and to see your light in the world breaking into the darkness. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen.